The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley with security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser with Clearance Jobs. I am so delighted to be speaking with Heather Green, the director of the Vetting Risk Operations Center at DCSA. DCSA has had a couple of really significant milestones, just had their two-year birthday and celebrated it with getting 100% of the DOD population enrolled into their continuous vetting program. So Heather, you're really ambitious for your birthday celebrations. Congrats on that news. Thank you so much. And and thank you so much for helping us communicate this important news to to all the audiences and American public. We appreciate it. Yeah. And I will say continuous vetting is something we've covered a ton at clearance jobs just because it is something that kind of the average security clearance applicant and also the security officer piece of it has had questions about. I think the announcement of enrollment is huge and is a big step just because one of the biggest ambiguities we've had from folks who have asked me are just saying, hey, how do I know if I'm in the continuous vetting program? And what does that change? So now we can say, A, you are enrolled in continuous vetting if you follow under the DOD ecosystem and certainly some other agencies as well. So B, maybe can you speak to that piece of it? Does it actually change anything for the average applicant? Will they experience their clearance process any differently at this point, having kind of accomplished that 1.25 milestone? So the, the average applicant, you know, when, when they're applying for a clearance will at this point in time continue to go through the same process. And what we're doing at this point is once an individual has been investigated and adjudicated, then they are automatically enrolled in continuous vetting. Certainly, the the average applicant would need to continue to work with their security manager to comply and respond to any requests for information that we may have, whether it be through the background investigation process they're initially going through or the continuous vetting process that, you know, we are implementing within uh, DOD. And then talk about that continuous vetting versus periodic reinvestigation. So I know the idea writ large through this Trusted Workforce 2.0 initiative was to replace periodic reinvestigations with continuous vetting. We've been kind of hesitant to tell people, hey, periodic reinvestigations are going away until that full CV piece is in place. And again, I know we have different iterations here. So is there information people should know about the continuous vetting part of it and what that means for their possibility to have a periodic reinvestigation? Because I think we could still see PRs triggered in some cases. Correct. So periodic investigations may still be a need. So I would just say you have to work directly with your security manager, depending on what type of investigation is required for our, our trusted workforce. They will be the best to speak to each individual case on a case-by-case basis. But I want to back up just a little bit and, and just kind of give give the audience a, a quick synopsis of, of our progress that we've made and, and, again, what that kind of means when, when we're replacing periodic reinvestigations. So 
As you know, uh, well before DCSA stood up in 2019, policymakers have worked really hard to design, you know, what that reform personal vetting policy would be. I'm really looking at it as a single secure vetting system for the country. And one of those central components of our reform is continuous vetting, right? Continuous vetting specifically as we're talking right now of individuals and positions of trust who require security clearance. That policy, right, Trusted Workforce 2.0 is was really a holistic whole of government personnel security reform effort that is involved is basically overhauling the vetting process as we speak. As you kind of alluded to, it does include replacing periodic reinvestigations that were happening on any, you know, a five to 10 year uh, periodicity, depending on what the clearance level was with a continuous vetting program. And the continuous vetting program is ensuring that a trusted workforce is vetted right in real time through automated record checks and other interagency information sharing and time-based checks. So our first step, you know, in, in here that we have made with the DOD population, and I want to make sure I highlight that this population that we've enrolled thus far includes uniformed service members, civilians, and defense contractors from private industry. So it is, you know, a, a large population covering anyone that is having access to classified information within the Department of Defense. But that first step, right, of continuous vetting, specifically trusted workforce 1.25 that you also alluded to, is really kind of building that that process and building our phased approach to fully replacing periodic reinvestigations. So at this point, with everyone enrolled in CW 1.25, PRs can be deferred which means that depending on, you know, your, your specific situation, you know, a periodic reinvestigation may not actually be submitted, right, to the investigative service provider for a full periodic reinvestigation. It may just be that we're able to collect additional information and, and validate that you are, in fact, enrolled in all the appropriate automated record check, get updated information based on where someone lives, works, and goes to school, that type of thing. So, may still have a need out there to have the subject complete their updated forms, but it will basically translate into a, a full periodic reinvestigation will be deferred at this point in time. Fantastic. That is great news. And it certainly speaks to, you know, again, the, the whole purpose here in terms of mitigating risk and seeing how under the continuous vetting process, you're just catching things way sooner than we're caught under the traditional periodic reinvestigation process. So you just mentioned like the 1.25 aspect of it. You released a great chart when you made the announcement about your enrollment accomplishment. And I think, you know, certainly check that out, folks who are listening or, um, you know, joining us here because I think it's, it's worth noting the difference between 1.25, 1.5, and 2.0. Can you briefly kind of touch on that? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, Trusted Workforce 1.25 was basically that, that first step of that phased approach to adding populations and adding data sources into the overall continuous vetting program. So TW 1.25 was focused on some of the high value uh, data checks that we felt were a priority that we wanted to get our entire population enrolled in, specifically criminal data sources, as well as terrorist data sources, and then obviously focusing on ensuring that we have the right people enrolled and have the appropriate affiliation and eligibility. You know, our next phase, right, the next step in our journey here is to get the rest of the cleared population enrolled in all seven data categories, which will be Trusted Workforce 1.5. We do have um, a large population enrolled in and not just the TW 1.25 data sources, but the additional data sources as well. But our goal will be by the end of fiscal year 2022 
to have um, all of our DOD national security population enrolled in uh, Trusted Workforce 1.5, again, covering seven data categories, as well as some time-based checks and agency-specific checks that will be occurring. Then we're going to continue to grow, right? Kind of, again, taking that phased approach to ensure we enroll the right population at the right time and the right data sources. And we'll grow when we get to Trusted Workforce 2.0 outside of our national security population. And we'll really be looking at that the rest of the uh, federal enterprise, and I'm sorry, that the DOD enterprise and focus on the uh, suitability population um, to make sure that we have them incorporated as well. One other thing I just want to throw in there, today we were kind of announcing the success of DCSA, you know, implementing, you know, and full enrollment of the DOD national security population. But we also, you know, the teams have worked really hard to building and offering a service to our non-DOD agencies and our, and our other customers out there. And we have been successful. We are now offering a trusted workforce 1.25 service to non-DOD agencies. We have approximately 30 agencies that are onboarded and, and enrolled within the service. So again, it, it really means that, you know, we're offering that service, you know, to the federal enterprise and we're able to identify those risks and concerns regarding individuals' trustworthiness early so that we can take appropriate action um, and in real time. So a lot of, a lot of good successes to celebrate today. I know that Heather Green is a professional because she answers my next question right before I'm actually going to get ready to answer it. So that was the other piece I was going to speak to about how even if you're not a DOD clearance holder, again, the solution that you've rolled out even with 1.25 is that you can enroll other agencies. So kind of like if you're an applicant and DCSA might be conducting your background investigation, even if you're not with that agency, the CB solution also applies to that greater community. So it's really helping kind of across the national security community that they can all kind of leverage these same resources. Have you seen any benefits to that already in terms of the agencies taking advantage of that? Just making, because I feel like it ties into the whole kind of one clearance concept that we've, we've We've seen, you know, that language thrown out there. And certainly when you have these solutions that other agencies can take advantage and also a lot, a lot of things just originating with DCSA and VROC, have you kind of seen the benefits of that already? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, we've had a lot of early adopters and agencies that have come on board and wanting to kind of test our our product and our capability and help us make it better. We certainly, you know, I, I can think of a few agencies that have given us glowing reviews advising that, wow, you know, um, they, they simply didn't have the resources and the uh, the technical capabilities in-house in order to um, receive, you know, this type of data and do the appropriate triaging and analysis of the information. So a lot of good good work and a lot of successes already um, in agencies that have been incorporated in our service have already provided those those positive comments. To your point on the other agencies and the, the one, right? So looking at one agency, right? That that's the direction that that all of government wants to go to because of the fact that you know individuals don't necessarily stay in their home organization for forever, right? So certainly, if you're working for DOD today and then tomorrow you're working for I don't know another government agency, let's just throw FAA or or another uh, agency out there doesn't mean that you're not going to move across the federal government. So it is really important for us to be able to share that information within the federal government and really have one CV solution, you know, across the enterprise. So our service is offering that where we're able to have that centralized ISP, you know, uh, driven CV uh, product where we're able to have that central repository of information that their CV alerts and CV information will travel uh, with the person because they're in that centralized area. 
And, you know, again, another positive that we have certainly found is that we are identifying information earlier than the next PR. And we have done that not only for DOD, but now on approximately 30 other agencies out there that we've provided our service to. Because I do want to just highlight that the ultimate goal of the CV program is to identify the issues earlier and really address any indicators that that we find early on. It does allow our individuals to uh, seek assistance, right, and mitigate any of the triggers that, that might be out there before really becoming a potential insider threat. So what we have seen, not only in the, uh, the DOD population, but also the service that we're offering to other customers, is that we are identifying information earlier and sharing it with the appropriate individuals to, to take the appropriate action at the right time. You asked my, you answered my next question again before I could ask it. So that is exactly what I was going to point to. I know I've seen from the reporting that you are triggering and you're finding things faster. Are there, are there things that are coming up that you generally maybe wouldn't have discovered or wouldn't have found out without the CV program triggering the investigation? And also, I think it's worth noting, too, just because something is flagged under CV, there is a process within VROC that analyzes whether that actually needs to trigger an actual investigation, whether it's a true alert and all of that. Absolutely. All of that. I, I absolutely agree with you. So, you know, our current data sources focus on, you know, criminal terrorism, um, you know, credit issues. We're expanding into suspicious financial activity and foreign travel activities. I'll throw a little plug in there for the culture of self-reporting, because I will mention that in many of the alerts that are generated via our automated record check have been previously reported. And that's a good thing, because we really do want individuals, when a situation occurs, whether it be a financial concern or a potential um, you know, criminal concern that, that they may have, um, uh, misdemeanor events, right? Um, any anything that would be concerning, you know, to them, we would want to make sure that they self-report that information because then when the automated record check comes in, that's the, one of the first things that we do. We're going to look to ensure that it meets our business rules right, that it is, in fact, an alert that should be coming in based on the federal investigative standards. We're going to look to make sure it is that it, it is our subject. So we do robust identity resolution. And then we're going to look to see, was it previously known? Is it something that has already been reported? And if it's already been reported, then it's already going through the, the, the process that it needs to go through to you know, potentially gather more information or potentially be adjudicated. But if it's not previously reported, that's when we start triaging that specific CB alert. And as you alluded to, it might mean a uh, additional investigation that has to take place, you know, to gather more information on, on this particular alert. It might mean that we request information, you know, directly from the subject. It might be, you know, significant that we have to refer over to an insider threat hub, a law enforcement entity, or, you know, um, uh, something of that nature. But again, it, it all depends on the, the alert and what actions have to be taken after that. But it does not mean, right, because we, we do receive a lot of alerts, it does not mean that the subject will automatically be removed from access. What it means is that we are identifying information early and that we're seeking assistance and helping to mitigate any triggers before they continue to escalate. Um, obviously, we may have those those few and far between information that's that's detected in CV that is of significance that we have to take immediate action. And that's where our appropriate threat mitigation teams come into play to uh, make that assessment and ensure we're taking the right action to protect not only the individual, the workforce, as well as national security as a whole. And you bring up a great point there with self-reporting, because one of the things we've kind of you know spoken about here is it used to be passage of time is one of the biggest ways to mitigate a potential issue. 
And we had folks that were honestly using as pa passage of time as also almost a false mitigation because they had a DUI three years ago, didn't report it. It didn't actually get flagged. It came up in their next periodic reinvestigation. But by that point, maybe it had been mitigated by time. So now that goes, we're, we're just being more proactive. The best way to mitigate things is to self-report them first. And I, and I love hearing that people have self-reported things before they came up in CV. And I think that's a great message to the, to the cleared population to say, hey, you're under CV now. It's just a good time to know what we have the Security Executive Agent Directive 3, we have those guidelines out. There should be some education on self-reporting requirements. And if people can be proactive about that, that's probably one of the best ways to insulate themselves from an issue is taking the proactive steps. I couldn't have said it any better. I, I absolutely agree. You know, your, your first stop should be your security manager and working with them to, uh, you know, ensure that you're reporting the right information at the right time. Perfect. Well, those are my only questions. Is there anything else you wanted me to touch on or you wanted to mention? I just want to mention that it certainly is a significant uh, milestone for GCSA and, and for DOD and, and honestly for the federal enterprise as a whole. Continuous vetting is certainly a needed reform effort, and we're making a lot of progress. And bottom line is that continuous vetting is working, and it's helping DCSA deliver a trusted workforce. So I'm, I'm really excited for this milestone and really excited to continue to work with the community to uh, continue to build and, and grow you know, the continuous vetting program as a whole. Attorney advertisement, not a guarantee or warranty of results. I'm attorney Sean Bigley. The denial or revocation of your security clearance is a devastating blow, but effective legal representation can make a difference. Contact my team at Bigley Ranish LLP for a free case evaluation. Find us online at biglylaw.com. Federal security clearances are all we do. Welcome back to Security Clearance Insecurity. I am attorney Sean Bigley, your co-host. And I'm back with clearancejobs.com's Lindy Kaiser. We were talking the U.S. government's continuous evaluation or CE program for security clearance holders and the recent news that all DOD security clearance holders are now enrolled in CE. So, Lindy, I know this is raising a lot of questions and anxiety uh, in the cleared community as far as what exactly this means for the average clearance holder. And one of the things that I think we should preface this discussion by talking about is it's really not a change of policy substantively, right? There's there's no change in the adjudicative guidelines. There's nothing that security clearance holders are being held to from a, a new standard or a different standard per se, but it is a difference in terms of how quickly things are being caught. What is uh, kind of the general consensus or the narrative that you're seeing on clearancejobs.com and on the discussion boards as far as what folks are concerned about? Well, I think, you know, I think there was concern when we first saw the news coming out about continuous vetting and continuous evaluation, the, not the notion of privacy, you know, would security clearance applicants be concerned about the intrusive nature of this? Um, I think people forget the prevalence of social media already and how much information we willingly give up. So I think there was less a concern from candidates about that. But there was some just general concern from candidates of like, hey, how do I know if I'm under this continuous vetting program? So I think the DOD announcement is somewhat reassuring there in the sense that if you're within the DOD population, active duty, civilian, if you're a contractor within the DOD industry side, you are under their continuous vetting program now. And I think that's just good knowledge for people to know. Do you think that in terms of have you seen any cases coming out where you've seen continuous vetting? Because I think that is another question too. Okay, now I know I'm under continuous vetting. How do I know if I had a letter of intent, something triggered by the CV program? 
Yeah. So I'll tell you, you know, how we're seeing this um, with our clients, uh, and, and that is predominantly uh, in the financial space. Uh, in other words, you know, folks have a bankruptcy that they've declared, or they've got some debts that they haven't necessarily reported yet to the government, and those things get flagged. And those have always been things that have been flagged. The difference is they've been flagged in the course of a standard reinvestigation, which most folks know occurs traditionally every five years for top secret clearance holders or every 10 years for secret clearance holders. And so now what's happening is it's being flagged essentially in real time. There's no difference in what the government's concerned about, but it's a lot quicker that this information is you know, being brought to their attention and then being boomeranged back out to the actual applicant for an explanation and a justification. And the issue that we're seeing specifically with this is that a lot of the built-in time for mitigation that used to just be naturally a product of the you know standard reinvestigation process and or the amount of time that it would take for this sort of thing to filter its way through the bureaucracy, a lot of that's gone now. So we have people who are getting CE reports flagged for things like delinquent debts um, that have gone to a judgment or a bankruptcy, things that are you know public records that are easy for the government to flag. And those are getting flagged in near real time. And then they're being called to account for those things weeks or months later. It's catching a lot of people off guard. They aren't prepared to respond. They, they don't have the mitigation in place in terms of a debt resolution plan and a budget and financial education and all the things that we typically recommend and push our clients to do as part of the normal process of challenging a denial or revocation for a clearance. So it's causing some real angst for those folks. The other area that we're seeing this pop up frequently is with arrests. People are being picked up for a DUI or um, you know a public intoxication arrest or something along those lines where maybe it's you know a misdemeanor, not the crime of the century, and normally they would have reported it on their next SF-86 or theoretically they should have self-reported it, but they don't self-report it. They think, I'll just get to it five years from now. And then suddenly they're surprised to find that the government already knows about it and it's being viewed as a big problem that they haven't self-reported. So Those are the types of scenarios that we're seeing, and we are getting on a semi-regular basis now cases that are specifically indicating that people are being flagged under the CE program. The revocation letter or the inquiry letter actually says a CE incident report filed on such and such date indicates that, and then it'll include the derogatory information. So a lot to think about if you're a clearance holder and you have something that pops up in your life that you know you weren't prepared for or you weren't anticipating, you really got to be on the ball in terms of how you're addressing it. For sure. And so, I mean, I think it's it's definitely interesting to note, have you seen anything be successful in terms of mitigating that? We often talk about how the fact not knowing that maybe you were supposed to be handling something a certain way isn't a factor, but are there any steps? We don't have passage of time anymore on your side. Are there other mitigations that you've seen be successful for some of those denials or revocations based on CE issues? 
Uh, there are. And, you know, I don't want anybody to think that it's a total lost cause if they get something flagged under the CE program. It's definitely not in most cases. The trick and the part that gets a little bit dicey is in the criminal law context, if you have, for example, uh, an arrest that's recent and it's an open court case, you've got to really be careful in what you're saying to the government because you may be inadvertently waiving, for example, Fifth Amendment right to remain silent or other rights that are available to you in the criminal case. So the first thing that I always tell people, if they get a CE incident report or they are self-reporting as required, you've got to talk to your criminal defense attorney before you say anything. It's very, very important. Outside of that context in the financial space and other issues that we're seeing in the CE incident reports, I think the biggest piece of advice or, or recommendation that I would tell any security clearance holder is, you've got to be proactive. It's it's not enough to sort of just say, well, I'm I'm working on it or I'm my plan or my intent is to do X. You've got to start doing it. And they understand in our experience that, you know, this built-in mitigation time is being removed. So there is a little bit of uh, I guess flexibility, I would say, on how they are looking for um, you know, the mitigation to be addressed. So maybe instead of having a year's worth of payments on a delinquent debt that you can show you've only got a month or two. Historically, that might have been a little bit more of an issue, but now because of the CE and, and the timeliness of it, as long as you can show that you're acting proactively and you're not sitting on your hands, that's going to go a long way. Fantastic. So continuous vetting coming to a secured clearance near near you. Now we talked about this before. So this is continuous vetting program, what they're calling Trusted Workforce 1.25, basically kind of the next iteration. Other agencies can actually kind of pay for service model to use this. I'm not getting any information from the intelligence community side about their CE program and implementation. Do you have any updates or have you seen any denials and revocations through the IC that have come through their CE program as well? It's interesting you mentioned that because that's something that we've been looking at here recently and, and trying to figure out why it is that the program doesn't seem to be having the same legs in the IC as it does at DOD. And frankly, we don't know what the answer to that question is. We are not seeing the same degree of frequency with these things popping up in the IC. Um, frankly, I, I'm trying to recall even one case recently that we've seen with a CE issue in the intelligence community, and I'm, I, I can't. We really don't know what the status is within the IC. We assume that it's coming. And if folks aren't already enrolled in it, then it's on its way. And so we would definitely, you know, encourage anybody in the IC who may be listening to sort of, you know, not take for granted that they're not enrolled in CE. As of right now, as best we can tell, it's it's DOD that's really taking the lead on this and, and being the most aggressive with implementation. And yeah, and that's just good advice to follow in general. Just assume, you know, the policies are out there. The government has the right to now do this. It's good to just have that understanding. And it certainly is a reminder to be proactive. If something happens that could impact your security clearance eligibility, take the steps to self-report and, you know, again, take any mitigating steps sooner rather than later. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I would just add on that note, I'm often surprised at how many folks 
haven't ever taken the time to read the guidelines that they're being held to. Um, and specifically, that's the National Adjudicative Guidelines for Security Clearances, which you can go online and Google and and find. I think it would behoove anybody holding a security clearance to just you know take a read through. It's it's good to know. It's something that for a lot of folks, their job is dependent on. So if you have a sense of what the government is looking at and what types of things would or wouldn't actually be mitigating, that's going to really help, I think, as well. Fantastic. On that note, CB, it's here for you, DOD and IC. Who knows? Your world is a mystery to me, somewhat, until somebody FOIAs it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity. Please note the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic for security clearance insecurity? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance Insecurity with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley of security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.